we're in this proto recession. They're doing this because we they also hired so many workers during the COVID stimulus era. And so there, there is a, a correction that is taking place. Of course, the Washington Post is not immune to that. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, January 23rd. Today on Media Monday, John Kelly and I examine Jeff Bezos' state visit to the Washington Post. His newsroom appearance last week raised new questions about possible layoffs at the paper and whether the leadership is there for the long haul. We also talk about a big reported drop in revenue at Twitter as advertisers fled the platform in the wake of Elon Musk's acquisition. How long will the company be feeling the pain? We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Happy Monday, everybody. And it is a happy Monday because it's Media Monday. I'm joined by the boss, John Kelly. How you doing, man? How was your weekend? Oh, good, man. I want to ask you about something that happened last week in the District of Disaster. Uh, Jeff Bezos showed up at the Washington Post. He obviously owns the Post. The Post has had some turmoil lately. Dylan's done a bunch of really good reporting Mm -hmm. on how, you know, post-Trump, the New York Times has continued chugging along as a business. And the Post has kind of not done so well in terms of revenue. They're trying to figure out different strategies. And there are layoffs coming. And Fred Ryan, the CEO and publisher, was roasted in a town hall meeting in mm-hmm. December. Post employees, people on the on the Post Guild, they shared videos of it on Twitter. It was really embarrassing for him. So there's all of this drama happening there. And then Bezos shows up. From all the readouts, and I know Dylan has a piece up about this, he sat in on an editorial meeting. Uh, one union member tried to ask him why they were going to lay people off without buyouts, and he kind of refused to answer, and he said he was just there to listen. Mm-hmm. Was Bezos just there to listen, or was he there with a, you know Amazon weed whacker trying to like you know <laughs> get rid of <laughs> dead brush? This is a really multi-layered story that, that excites me on, on a number of levels. First and foremost, Jeff Bezos you know, is the... Uh, not just like the, the CEO of our time, but but the sort of operator of our time in terms of knowing how to manage to profitability the the most low margin business in the world, which is delivery, and um, maybe this the second most used to be uh, uh, d- digital media and and the newspaper trade. So I do think that he's learning. I, I do think that he probably has a, a few things on his mind, and that's step one is to go and, and listen. This is sort of the you know the the, the er management playbook. But there are a number of other things uh, going on behind the scenes that that are equally interesting. Obviously, the largest companies in our economy are laying workers off. Microsoft, Google, 
Amazon. They're doing that because we're we're in this proto recession. They're doing this because we they also hired so many workers during the COVID stimulus era. And so there there is a, a correction that is taking place. Of course, the Washington Post is not immune to that. So I, I think there's a prevailing media narrative that any layoff is is a tragedy. But these are these are businesses and they have to adjust to time. So I think that, um, so of course it's taking place here. On a deeper level, as Dylan's uh, reported on incredibly, there's an obvious tension between Sally Busby, the newish executive editor of the Washington Post who took over from Marty Barron, and Fred Ryan, who's been sort of the only CEO that Bezos has ever had at the paper. And and who, if you look at the body of his work, has done an extraordinary job managing this investment. You know, we forget that the Washington Post traded hands at a time when a lot of media of that size was moving from being business units of large media companies to the the hands of of uh, billionaires who just wanted to run them profitably. And uh, you think about Mark Benioff of Time. You think about the the ownership of Fortune. The, the new houses have owned Condé Nast, uh, you know, since uh, you know for for a century. And Bezos, you know, under uh, under his ownership, uh, he's been an incredible custodian, and, and and Ryan managed it profitably. I think there was a time when the Washington Post thought it was going to be the New York Times, and that is not the case. And, and there has been extraordinary agita around that. Um, but of course, at the end of the day, business models and structure are enduring. The Post is a entity owned by one person. The New York Times is a dual class structure that is publicly traded, that has a CEO who's in growth mode. So they're different. And I, I think that par- part of what enraged the newsroom at the Washington Post, which, which as you noted, sort of, you know, through banana peels at, at Fred Ryan, was that they kind of have realized in the last year that they're more of a political than a Times in terms mm-hmm. of their, their size and scope and outreach. And that's just the business that they are. You know, and journalism is largely an endorphin-fueled calling, and I think that there there is a uh, there was a crestfallen nature uh, w- within that newsroom. And Dylan's reporter captures it uh, brilliantly that they were getting smaller, not bigger. That was upsetting, and uh, and I think that there was some tactical. Terrible tactical flaws made, particularly, um, it seems, you know, there is not a ton of love lost between uh, Ryan and, and, and Busby. That, that happens a lot at big organizations. But it sounds like there was some serious shit talking that was really foolish and set the organization back. And I'm sure that uh, Bezos is here to remind people that the sheriff is in town. Yeah. I mean, I think we know that Bezos spends time on Twitter. My friends who work for politicians always talked about their bosses and said something uh, interesting, which was like they either read the clips or they don't like Bezos reads mm-hmm. the clips and you know that he probably saw that town hall sure. meeting, you know, that bothered him, especially as you know, I hope and I, I think that he understands that running a newsroom is different than running Amazon.com. But as you know, he has this like managerial aura around him. So I'm sure he saw that and was like, this is not a good place to work right now. And yeah. I'm going to go show up flex my HGH muscles and have some private meetings with Fred and Sally. But I think at the end of the day. And the journalist too. He met with. Yeah, yeah. He, he met, met with Phil Rucker and Laurie yeah. Montgomery and Josh right. Dossie, a right. bunch of folks. Um, I'm curious to, to know what, what he asked them about. You know, he probably just wants to gather some political intelligence too, you know, like, sure. like rich guys uh, like that. I can guarantee you that Jeff Bezos's intel is probably better than theirs, but uh, maybe, I'm but you know, went. It, it, pro- that's probably true. But like, those are, those are a bunch of good reporters. If there's one sure. thing I know about, rich guys it's that they love to go on their yacht or go to a party and 
tell people the latest like intel oh. from that's happening in dc so you know you got that baby why do you think yeah. you bought the washington post <laughs> subscribe to puck um <laughs> so yeah i mean i i do think though at the end of the day you know fred and sally in, mm. in, in consultation with their their direct reports will figure out who's going to get laid off but mm-hmm. i did like the idea that the union spoke up and made their presence known but like <laughs> jeff bezos not a union guy <laughs> uh i'm sure he uh, isn't really interested in listening to the post guild but who knows sure and i don't want to get added on this point but union representation is one thing in a large factory and logistics business in newsrooms i think it's an, it's another matter too and there are actual impediments towards innovation when you when you look at how fast the peer set of the washington post and the new york times has to adjust mm-hmm. like you know, unions can make that harder. I'm not blaming anyone here. You know, I don't want to, you know, whatever. My, my, you can find my email and, and send me um, a note if, if you if you disagree. But I think that Bezos, I assume, at, deep in his heart of hearts must think, do you guys remember where this place was a decade ago when I came in and poured, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars into it? And look where it is now. Like, we're, we're going through a moment here. Let's not lose our minds. And I actually think a lot more of the changes are going to take place on the commercial side of the business, the actual, the business side of the business. Uh, you know, the, the newsroom will run itself. I think I'm sure Sally Busby is a, is a very competent newsroom manager. But I have to imagine that when it comes to sales and technology, Bezos is, is you know, and it's a private company, so there's a lot that we don't know. But if you are him and you are coming in here and you are seeing what Axios and Punchbowl and Politico have, have accomplished in the, in the last five years, you know, not just from a, a subscriber's standpoint, but actually like mm-hmm. commercial strategy to take advantage of just the totally new products, money. completely new products, <laughs> to- to- like, totally like a user totally. experience that's very nice. Right, there. The unit of our business has changed, right? Like, I think we have to be we have to be fundamentally honest. The 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 unit used to be the newspaper, then it was the website, and now it is like uh, largely email. It, it is an email based product. So you have to be very honest about are you, are you making things that satisfy how consumers want to touch the product? And that's a very real conversation. And when you think about the amount of money that's rolling into Washington for influence, especially if you think about this insane Congress that that we have right now. Mm-hmm. And all these massively important pieces of legislation, like 230, are, are up there like a pinata. Well, boy, I think some of the biggest companies in the Fortune 20 probably want to put as much money as possible in pockets of influence where they can connect with lawmakers on Capitol Hill or people mm-hmm. who have a vote on these matters. And the Washington Post, there, there's no question in my mind, has under-monetized those opportunities. Like, no doubt about it. And so I'm sure that uh, that there is a plan to rectify that. So actually, I think that the, uh, my suggestion, like, hypothesis, I'm not, you know, cribbing Dylan's work here, I'm, I'm, and I'm not inside Jeff Bezos' brain, is that the strategic decisions that are going to be made here are going to be more focused on commercial strategy. But let's see if I'm wrong. I want to take some personal privilege here. Uh, this might be, might be, there might be a 1% chance that Bezos listens to this podcast. And I just want to say to you, sir, if you do buy the commanders, I know you set out the initial round, please do it. Uh, and I think I can distill what Washington fans want. And it's not complicated. We need a new quarterback. The rest of the team's pretty good. Please build a stadium in downtown Washington, maybe former RFK location, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, and uh, do a rebrand. I know we've had a lot of name changes, but I think no one likes commanders. Yeah. Um, so just do a total reset. And we are all rooting for you, sir, to buy 
the Washington football team. Uh, John, when we come back, I want to ask you about revenue at Twitter and how bad it is over there. Welcome back, everybody. We knew that revenue was going to drop at Twitter after Elon Musk took over. Many advertisers and you know big holding companies were pretty public that they were going to pull back from Twitter until they kind of saw what the strategy was going to be, figured out if this was going to be a quote-unquote brand-safe opportunity for them. And also, Twitter was never, and we've talked about this a lot, I've talked about Bill a ton, Twitter was never a money spout uh, compared mm-hmm. to other big tech yeah. companies. Uh, think about your own experience on Twitter, listeners of powers that be. How often have you engaged with an ad on Twitter? Can you name the last ad on Twitter you saw? So like the ad, Twitter is an ad-supported company. That's how they make money. They've been able to survive, but they were never one of the Apple alphabet level kind of revenue companies. John, the information reported late last week that Twitter saw a year-over-year drop in revenue of 35%, comparing Q4 this year to Q4 last year. Twitter is now a privately held company. They don't have to do earnings calls, so we're going to have to you know, rely on reports like this one from the information uh, to now get information about Twitter's yeah. health as a business. Did any of this surprise you, and does this spell doom for Twitter, or are they going to be fine? You're right that we the information, I think, has to be taken uh with a slight grain of salt uh, around this company for for the reasons you mentioned um and they're quoting a, i believe a senior manager in the story who's taking a snapshot of the drop but but there's a lot to back it up there was a presentation also that, that noted that 500 of twitter's top advertisers have, have paused spend since musk took over the company at the end that's of last brutal. year that's a lot yeah so so it, it, it these things do kind of map out to the same place at the same time the company has relieved three quarters of its workforce, uh, mm-hmm. which is, um, we talked about dramatic layoffs in the previous segment. It doesn't get much more dramatic than that. And I actually, I imagine that that in some way, and I think Scott Galloway's made this point too, but you know, there's a cohort of uh, sinister C-suiters who are, who are sort of, you know, in a Dr. Evil kind of way, rubbing their, their fingers and their temples thinking like, wow, like, this is how you really operate to profitability. You, know, you, you actually can run a platform if you strip out all these jobs. Um, it, it's a fascinating side note. This is obviously unsustainable. Twitter has, uh, you know, has debt obligations to pay off and it, it needs to create enough revenue to service them right now. If this continues uh, apace, it seems like it's not going to have enough revenue to service the debts, and it'll have to be backstopped either with a new round of equity financing, which seems unlikely because all the people who've already put equity financing in this are, are underwater, mm-hmm. um, uh, a bank, which um, seems even less likely since um, you know th- these banks are trying to get the debt off their balance sheet, and um, I think Elon Musk also has uh, proven to have a not entirely warm and friendly relationship with with, with uh, a lot of the um, you know financial capitalists of Wall Street or his own money, which seems uh, the most likely. And I think he sold about four billion dollars worth of Tesla stock the other day. So I imagine mm-hmm. that uh, that was done with this in mind. I actually we've discussed this before. I, I admit I'm not a mega mega Twitter uh, super user. I think for 
for the growing pains it's going through, the the experience hasn't tra- it, it's it's shittier, but it hasn't transformed uh, in a way that that it, it's going down the drain. There are more ads because the ads are cheaper, but it, it's it's still it's still serviceable in a lot of ways. And I also think that he's betting correctly on the fact that those five hundred top advertisers are going to come back in some way, shape, or form, and that, and that there is an equilibrium point. I don't know where it is, and it's gonna mm-hmm. this thing is gonna like you know have to Hoover up. Uh, cash to get there when it's run so inexpensively that the the revenue um, when it returns will um, let this thing flood above water again. Yeah, I mean it's interesting to it's hard to compare or say that all of this is Elon Musk's fault. I mean, like revenue is down for all tech companies, and we've seen layoffs at hardware places like Microsoft and and other places like Google recently. Um, And, you know, we will be able to compare how some of the other big tech companies, Snapchat, where I work, you know, earnings call coming up at the end of the Mm -hmm. month, all the all the big tech companies will have earnings calls. But it's it's just hard not to separate Musk's behavior from these losses. And the other note, too, here is early on, it really felt like a lot of advertisers were spooked because Musk was going to relax, quote unquote, free speech rules and allow racism and and anti-Semitism and misogyny back on the platform. And there was a pullback, you know, since then, like the product itself. And you and I talked about this is just kind of like weird. Like it's not Mm -hmm. it's not a great like it doesn't look great. My feed is all over the place. I'm getting served accounts I don't follow. I'm getting targeted for weird ads like I'm scrolling right now. Uh, vikinggoods.com like a uh, this is a merch company that is apparently selling t-shirts with I see a bear wearing like Norse armor on it like what like like what kind of this is like those like weird ads that run on like late night TV like on like public (laughs) you know like on like shitty cable channels at one in the morning like those are the kind of the quality of the ads we're seeing on Twitter right now anyway it's just like uh, it's a weird experience and I do I do wonder if advertisers who pull back are now looking at their spend and they're like, did we even need to be on there? Like, that's a big question. Like if you're like Pepsi or Coke, like, do you need to be on Twitter? Uh, And like, I feel like this is giving them an opportunity at least to kind of like a B test some of their, you know, sales and performance based on where they're putting their money. You know, I, I think uh, the information also published a piece about um, the Jessica Lesson, the founder said that the Twitter was not an effective marketing tool for them. But I am going to take the other side of that. I, I, I think okay. that everyone is going to come back. Um, I think that you're still talking to hundreds of millions of people. Maybe they come back mm-hmm. in smaller numbers here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our, our personal algorithms are all are all bizarre. The, the ads I see on Instagram are, are insane, too. I'm sure we probably get served a lot of the same stuff on paper. We probably look the same. Late guys buying, yeah, some, exactly. some, buying pants on Instagram. Okay, can I, uh, who has more Vori shorts? Three, two, one, go. You know, and, <laughs> so and, uh, many. I'm literally wearing Viore joggers right now. <laughs> so I think that um, I, I think that actually these ads are getting so inexpensive that they're almost going to become irresistible for for big companies, and they're, they're yeah. just you know they're going to wait this out, and uh, and I'm sure that that carving the the tens or you know hundreds of millions of dollars that they would normally spend here um pulling it off their PL probably uh in a time of retrenchment makes things easier but i guess i'm not i'm certainly not trying to give anyone a pass here but but this this product still works you know and it was always a sort of uh 
janky, like, you know, best and worst of the town square type experience. And I don't think that, that what we're seeing here is like materially worse, that it's going to push people off of it. And I also think that he is a success machine, whether you like it or not, and that he is deeply motivated to to make this thing work in one way or another. Because it, it is his now, and I, I can't imagine that this dies on the vine. I know that all these depressing numbers about the, the, the revenue drop do lead to some some people to, to think that it's possible that, that this thing really goes kaput, but there's no way. I mean, Elon Musk's personal net worth, I was just checking it before, he's, he's still clocking in at $135 billion, even with uh, Tesla shares dropping by the day. And if this is, you know, if he can get this back to what he bought it for, that's going to be 25% of his net worth. So um, that's that's motivating. If you if you and I had that, those kind of chips on the table, I think we'd we'd be uh, scratching our head pretty hard to figure it out. Uh, yeah, I hope he doesn't buy the Washington Post. All right, John. Thanks so much for your insights as always. Have a great week, man. One last question, Peter. Oh, is, yeah. is, should Jeff Bezos keep Riverboat Ron if he buys the Commanders? <laughs> I, you know, toward the end of the season, like defense is good. The receivers are good. They just need a quarterback. And like, I, I think the GM is good. And like, Ron has done a pretty good job. I just think it's um, a quarterback issue uh, for sure. And that's obviously not Bezos's call, but um, I would keep Riverboat Ron. I think he's done a pretty good job. That's my take. <laughs> All right. I'm just imagining that's, Aaron Rodgers in, in a commander's uh, jersey right now. I, I think anything is possible. I think anything's possible. They have ayahuasca in the, in the district. Anything's the bottom possible. line, <laughs> the bottom line is, if Snyder is selling the team, that is a wish fulfilled that we have wanted for a very long time. So whoever buys the team, hopefully, oh uh, totally. Can't be worse. Can't be Object worse. one: get Trump out of Washington. Object two: get Snyder out. This is uh, <laughs> it's been a good couple of years. Agreed. Build back better the commanders. All right. <laughs> Thanks, John. Later, buddy. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.